This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. Thus spring wore on again and again, and vaguely and more vaguely as these years passed, he felt it coming. But still one thing remained to him, and it was his love for his land. He had gone away from it, and he had set up his house in a town, and he was rich, but his roots were in his land. And although he forgot it for many months together, when spring came each year, he must go out onto the land. And now, although he could no longer hold a plow or do anything but see another drive the plow through the earth, still, he must needs go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui Lin. Joining me, as always, my fellow lover of researching and deep diving into authors, Sharmila Ganesan. Always. Hello. (laughs) Um, And of course, it is that time of month where we are doing our bibliography episodes in which we look into the life and times and work of one particular author each time. And uh, this month, we're focusing on somebody whose birthday is on June 26th in 1892. We're talking about Pearl S. Buck, or her full name rather, Pearl Seidenstricker Buck. Buck is so interesting because I think most people remember her for specifically one thing and that's a big thing. Essentially, her English literature focusing on Chinese rural life. But the more you you learn about her and the more you find out about her life and the things that she's done, she's so interesting. She's such an interesting person that And and I think I'm going to admit this up front, I've only ever actually read one of her books, but I almost feel like I'm a bigger fan of Pearl S. Buck, the person, than I am of Pearl S. Buck, the books. And that's not to say she's not a good writer, just that's just how fascinating she is. So I went through a a reading period in which I was really deeply fascinated by, by China. And there's a rich vein of writing both from Chinese people as well as uh, from, from others, right, that explores China, particularly through the lens of the Cultural Revolution, in terms of how they went from dynasty to dynasty. And Pearl S. Buck was very much a part of my reading during that time, which is why my first introduction to her was through The Good Earth, but subsequently I read the whole trilogy. I've also read a number of her other books. And I think we should say up front that what's in some ways most interesting about her is the fact that she was a white woman writing very specifically about Chinese experiences. But a lot of the elements in her life kind of make it very clear as to why that was her focus. And and that kind of runs through, I think, a lot of the work and, and the kind of person she was, right? This isn't just a Westerner who sort of parachuted in, decided that it would be exotic and interesting to write about a culture that's not her own. Um, she grew up in China and it, it informed a lot of her early experiences. It informed, I think, even a certain worldview. And I think later on, it, it even changed her connection to her quote-unquote society back home. So when she moved back to America, what she had learned in China impacted a lot of things that she would go on to do, choices that she would make, and even causes that she would support and things that she spoke up for. So I think Pearl S. Buck is a really interesting writer to look at today. As we speak more and more about what representation means, as we speak more about what diversity in literature means, I think we could do well to look back at some of her works and how she approached them. Also because she's largely forgotten. Uh, A lot of her books are actually not in print, I think, or at least not easily available here in Malaysia. 
And that's a very odd thing when you consider the kind of plaudits that she had in her lifetime. I mean, she won the Pulitzer Prize at the age of 40. She went on to win the Nobel Prize in Literature at a relatively young age. And yet, Again, I, I don't know whether it's just because the Chinese government did a lot to wipe out her, her work and or, or try to downplay her legacy in some ways. I think it's also become a little bit unpopular to look at somebody who was essentially an outsider to a culture writing about a culture. And so these are all the reasons, I think, why she's now forgotten is a strong word, but not as widely read as you would think. So just to take it back to the start before we get into the writing itself. So she was born, like we said earlier, um, June 26, 1892, and she was the daughter of missionaries. So while she was born in West Virginia, she spent a lot of her early life and education up until she returned to the US for college in, in China, um, in various parts of China. And her parents specifically raised her not to think of the Chinese people that she lived with as others, right? As other than. Instead, she was bilingual from the very beginning. She went to school locally. So I think all these things really immersed her in China. She talked about how she was shocked at the other uh, white people in her school who looked down on the local Chinese communities because that wasn't her experience with her family. And she talked about how she learned formal Chinese from a tutor, but she also learned dialect from her friends and people in her neighborhood. And actually, when you contrast that with who her family was, they were these sort of, I think, almost cookie-cutter Presbyterians from the outside. Um, I think it, it's quite striking, that difference. And, and it's also quite striking because I don't think many other families who come from that kind of background would end up that way. And specifically, I think the idea of religion and the idea of what it means to even be missionaries. She goes on to talk about how it's not someone's job to... Um, I suppose, talk down to people. It's not someone's job to bring religion to somebody else. And all of these things are things you see informing her writing and, and her larger causes as well. So in any of these episodes, in any of the author's lives, right, we're always talking about a particular period of history because their lifetimes, um, you know, most of them lived till 60, 70, 80. They, they span a specific period of time. And when you look at what interested them or when you look at how they participated in the politics or the culture of their day, it's always dependent on what was happening at the time. And Pearl S. Buck lived through a particularly interesting period, um, even if you don't take into account World War II, because she actually, in her early childhood, lived through the Boxer incident. Uh, later on in her 20s, she lived through the Nanking incident. And I think in both times, this is quite telling, her family decided to stay. Both incidents which would have seen potential harm come their way for being foreigners, for being, well, missionaries, they decided to stay put. And I think that that speaks to the kind of roots that you feel that you have in, in a community or in a culture. And you particularly see that in the fact that their neighbours actually sheltered them. And you see that attachment to the things that she ended up writing about, right? Because while she wasn't necessarily supportive of the regime or those in power, she was very much not just sympathetic, but empathetic towards the common folk, the people who I think she had the most contact with the people that she saw go through these events and, and suffer through these events, really. These sort of formative years did a lot to inform the kind of writing she does. Uh, but I think also to not put her in a a top-down view. 
So the other thing about the the writing, let's come to the writing. She started writing formally uh, because she found herself in financial dire straits. So what happened was that she had gone back to America for her college years. I don't think that she had necessarily intended to return to China, but her parents had stayed, right, to continue to do their missionary work and her mother fell ill. And so when that happened, she applied to go back to China where she married her husband who left her with her surname and by all accounts, not a very happy marriage, John mm-hmm. Lossingbuck. And they stayed married for 18 years. But that was how she returned to China. And it was in this period where she had also had a daughter with congenital health issues um, and required a lot of care. And it was actually these things, right? And the fact that teaching, I think, was not enough to sustain the family financially that she turned to writing. And so um, I think, again, subverting this idea, um, and we've talked about a number of writers who wrote a little bit because they could afford it. Um, you know, it's it's been a mixed bag in terms of our bibliographies. But in her case, she wrote because it was something she'd always been interested in and she needed the money. And I, I again, really like that because it's not coming so much from a place of privilege and of sort of cherry picking people's stories, putting it together and hoping to benefit from it. I just wanted to point out some of the influences or the the kinds of writing, I think, that shaped what she ended up writing. So as a child, she was a really... Um, Uh, She was a big fan of Charles Dickens. And I love that. I didn't know that until I started doing some of this research. And you can see the the connections, the the man on the street, the lives of ordinary people. Um, But she was also really enamored by classical Chinese novels. And um, a lot of people have pointed out that the structure of her stories, the the ways in which she uh, talks about life and, and philosophy very much resembles these novels in some ways. But more importantly, I think um, a large part of the reason why she was pushed to becoming a writer in the first place also had to do with the fact that she was friends with a lot of prominent Chinese writers in China at that time. People like Zhu Jimo, uh, Lin Yutang. So I think all of this kind of came together and in just the right way. And as you said, really informed, uh, informed by a need, a need to figure out how to make a living and I think that's a nice mix of both really romantic ideas of why someone becomes a writer and really practical ones. So this is our monthly bibliography episode and we are marking the birthday of Pearl S. Buck um, by looking at her life and work. Have you read any Pearl S. Buck? I are you interested? Now that we've been talking about her for a little bit, let us know. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Brainy, fancy material. BFM 89.9. In the house of the Manchu bannerman Muyanga in Pewter Lane, the sand was more than usually tiresome, for the windows did not fit tightly and the doors hung loose upon their wooden hinges. On this particular morning, Orchid, his niece and the eldest child of his dead brother, was wakened by the noise of wind and creaking wood. She was a handsome girl, this Orchid, seeming taller than she was because she was slender and held herself erect. Her features were strong, but not coarse, her nose straight, her eyebrows clear, her mouth well-shaped and not too small. Her great beauty lay in her eyes. They were long and large and exceedingly clear, the black and white pure and separate. Yet such beauty might have been meaningless except for the natural spirit and intelligence that informed her entire being, although she was still very young. She was self-controlled, 
her strength apparent in the smoothness of her movements and the calm of her manner. Hello, you are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. And today it is our monthly bibliography episode. So we're just a few days away from Pearl S. Buck's 120, what would have been her 129th birthday. She was born on June 26th, 1892. So we thought we would spend our episode focusing on her and her frankly really fascinating life. Um, so we were talking earlier about what led her to to writing, to publishing, and also about her influences. Now, she has spoken before. You mentioned Charles Dickens earlier, uh, but she also talked quite a lot about how her storytelling sensibilities, her ideas of what it would mean to be a storyteller, um, were actually informed by the grand Chinese epics, you know, by um, the kinds of things that are a mix of written and oral tradition, the things that people tell each other, the books that are widely available. And um, she also talked about mass appeal and how that was really important. She would rather not, say, be published in a literary magazine. Instead, she wanted to be widely available, widely read. And I bring this up because it, I think, informs her language. Her language is something that has come under a lot of scrutiny because it is very simple. It can be somewhat repetitive and elliptical in nature, but there's also a lot of beautiful descriptions. At its heart, though, her language was simple and simple on purpose. And simple is actually for me, quite significant personally, because I read The Good Earth when I was very young, possibly a little too young to understand the um, larger political ideas that were under the surface. But I think that's a good thing. I mean, being able to read something like The Good Earth when you're a preteen or an early teenager, I think more writers should should write in a way that considers that you want to be accessible. I think more and more as we talk about, quote unquote, the important books, um, they also somehow become synonymous for difficult books. And Pearless Buck wasn't a, quote unquote, difficult writer. She was actually an incredibly easy writer to read. Uh, people often compare the way she writes to the Bible. And I, I don't think uh, that's meant as a negative. Instead, it's meant to, it's meant to sort of talk about how it's, it hits you and you feel what it's trying to say without it feeling like she's trying too hard or over-explaining or given to literary excess. So I mentioned earlier um, how she is, as we all are, a product of the times in which we live. And you see that reflected in her books. So um, she started with East Wind, West Wind, which was a, a look at kind of the, the changing mores of China, right? In that transition towards modernization. The Good Earth, which we've referenced several times because it is um, her best known work. It's the one for which she won the Pulitzer. It focuses on what it means to be peasants in China and that that connection to the earth, but also how the further up the line of capitalism you go, the more removed you become from that, the more struggles you take on in some ways. And that these sorts of themes and the changing landscape of China was something that she returned to over and over and over again. She wrote so many novels. Uh, she published prodigiously throughout her lifetime. And this was always kind of the, the central focus. Can I just say that she actually met who would go on to be her second husband right at the cusp of publishing her first novel, East Wind, West Wind, because he was essentially the editor that she met at the publishers in New York. And she began a relationship with him. She would eventually go on to marry him. Essentially, she'd marry him on the same day she divorced her first husband. Yes. <laughs> and they stayed together for more than 40 years. So he's actually credited with being a great uh, supporter and encourager in her career. Someone who... Um, as an editor and being from the industry, uh, sort of played that 
role in allowing her to do all the multiple things that she ended up doing. So I think, you know, as we head towards the the closing of our Pearl S. Buck episode and uh, looking at the impact her life has had, because the third act, I would say, of her life is really where so much of the interesting work and legacy she's done has continued, right, beyond the writing. I also wanted to talk about the way she influenced how Americans looked at China, because this came during a, a fraught period, uh, the rise of communism. And uh, we know, we I think historically, we all know how America has, has reacted to, to that threat. So the word humanizing is used a lot. And it's an important one because it can be very easy, even today, to look at a country not as its people, but as its government or uh, as how it's putting itself out in the world, as opposed to the people who actually live there. So with books that focused on the lives, the lives of ordinary Chinese people that talked about what it is that they were thinking about at the time, their, their concerns, their loves, their fears, um, it went a long way, I think, towards humanizing a country that even then was already halfway towards becoming uh, an an enemy of the United States. Ernest Buck's books are actually um, often credited as being a large reason why America became more sympathetic towards China versus Japan, uh, particularly in the uh, mid to late 30s. But conversely, and, and quite sadly for her, post-cultural revolution, she became denounced by the Chinese government and precisely because she wasn't a big fan of the communist government at all. And in fact, um, subsequently wrote Satan Never Sleeps, which is essentially about... <laughs> I know. The communist, uh, the communist regime. Uh, she was actually banned from visiting China when she was initially supposed to visit along with President Richard Nixon. I can't. What is this history that we're talking about? That's what I mean. Um, we've done a fair number of these episodes now, and I don't want to downplay the fact that everyone's lived an interesting life. Everyone has written interesting things, but there are times, especially for the um, the female authors that we've done, that we've not seen this level of adventuring, um, that we've not seen this level of immersion necessarily in other cultures. And I think that part of it is just a sort of byproduct of being a child of missionaries and therefore having that sort of international exposure. But a huge part of it is being raised a certain way because it's one thing to be in another country. It's one thing to be in another country and to be told that you are not superior. You need to learn the language. You need to make friends with the people who are around you. They are not different to you. And we will see those through lines all the way, not just to her writing, but even to the causes to which she dedicated her time to. Because she, along with being a writer, was a huge humanitarian. She advocated for women's rights. Uh, she advocated for Asian adoptions at, at a time where those children were considered unadoptable. She herself adopted six children. I think she founded the first, the first uh, international interracial adoption agency. There you go. So, you know, and these are things that are as much a part of her legacy, if not more, um, as her writing. That's so important, isn't it? Because again, that question of why should we revere the works of a, a person who's not from a particular culture, I think it's worth looking at what other work they've done and how much their commitment to um, the issues surrounding that culture is. And I think Perlis Buck, if nothing else, was thoroughly committed to things like equality, things like human rights, things like providing a voice or a platform for people whom she felt didn't have that voice. Um, and therefore, I think it's, um, again, I think it's a pity that she's kind of become 
not unfashionable, but doesn't get talked about that much because I don't know, it feels like there are things to be learned from her legacy more than just the writing. Yeah, Yeah, um, as somebody who has long enjoyed her books, who has I think of her in many ways as one of the the formative authors of my transition from childhood reading into adult reading. And I didn't know that much about her life. I figured she probably had an interesting life because of um, her focus on China. But doing this episode has made me really happy, knowing that knowing that somebody went out there and really pioneered so many things and dedicated a significant chunk of her life, not just to doing something she loved, writing, but also to championing the rights of others. Sometimes you look back in history and you see people who seemed otherwise decent, but who were definitely on the wrong side of a particular issue. And it's just it's just heartening to know it doesn't have to be that way. No, and it's also heartening to know that uh, there are ways in which this can be done right. There are ways in which writers can write about other cultures and not come across as capitalizing on them. So we've been talking today about the life and work of Pearl S. Buck or Pearl Seidenstricker Buck or Sai Jenju, um, as she is likely known on her tombstone because she did design her own tombstone and wanted her Chinese name written on it. But yes, Pearl S. Buck, author of The Good Earth. Have you read her works? Do you enjoy Pearl S. Buck? Do you plan to perhaps go out there and pick up a copy of something? Let us know. You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. us to footnotes and I know we we ended on quite an optimistic note earlier but in this section of the show we tend to look at adaptations and the main adaptation of Pearl S. Buck's work has been a 1937 production of The Good Earth. Sharmila, want to tell us about it? (laughs) So I've only watched clips of it, I haven't watched the whole thing. For all intents and purposes, it's apparently not a bad film. It's actually held up to be quite a good film, in fact. However, it was made in 1937. Let's just say that for a film that's set in China, none of the lead characters are actually played by Chinese people. In fact, they're played by very white people who are made to look Chinese in the worst of ways. Um, It involves sellotape. Yes, yes, it really does. And and then I was also quite horrified to find out that Catherine Hepburn had played uh, a similarly cello-taped character in Dragon Seed, um, which really, I mean, Dragon Seed's a great story. I'm sure it would have made a great film, but none of these films would be films that we'd watch today and be comfortable with. go back in that house it will be with my son in my arms and I'll show myself and my son to all of them yeah, I, I guess it's one of... So when we talked earlier about how Pearl S. Buck herself um, really shied away from Americanizing um, her work, right? Or trying to make it more more palatable, more easily understandable, say, for an American audience. I think that the film did not do that. And that's, again, a product of Hollywood. I was going to say at a certain era, but frankly, any era, of trying to make it appeal more to an English-speaking audience, more to an American audience. Perhaps today, with the Chinese movie market 
being what it is, it would not have been this way. You know, there would have been more of an attempt to at least court the, the Chinese, the international audience. But at the time, they were thinking only, I think, about English-speaking members of the public. And so this is what they came up with. Um, I don't really have an interest in watching this film, I have to say. I am sure that it is... It, it won Louise Rainier, Rainier uh, an Academy Award, really, for playing Olan. Um, and and I, I've heard that she's great in it, but I can't, I can't, I can't watch the cello-taped eyes and think that I'm appreciating a performance, unfortunately. I do wonder if this opens up um, any possibilities for future adaptations of, if not The Good Earth, then other Pearl S. Buck novels. I, I think... I think that the thing about The Good Earth is that it was published in 1931 and then it was adapted in 1937. And so it was a hugely popular book. Again, it was also coming at a, during a period, I would imagine, of curiosity about China. I don't know whether now, again, with China being sort of the modern powerhouse that it is, whether there is actually an interest in looking back to peasant roots. And also, for that matter, whether or not Pearl S. Buck is still persona non grata in China. So I, I don't know, actually, whether or not something like The Good Earth would be adapted again. I don't think... I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think that the push for it is going to come from China. I don't think this is a story necessarily that would serve its narrative. Um, I would love to see it not so much as a movie. I really think that The Good Earth would make a great TV show, one in which they can spend time developing both the uh, the geography, the spaces, but also the characters. I really think it would work very well as a, a TV show. But you're right. I don't see it sort of neatly fitting anywhere. You know what I think would work, uh, but could be dicey or risky, um, is actually a Perlis Buck uh, biopic. And and there was word of it happening with Juliette Binoche, I think, attached to it a while back, but then it never came through. So I'd love to see that. And I can also see, though, why people might be hesitant, because you can so easily fall into the... Um, White saviour. White, yeah, white saviour lens. Yeah, so An Chi Min has actually written um, a fictional biography about Pearl S. Buck called Pearl of China, and perhaps that would be a good source. I mean, it's a fascinating life. I think if it's done sort of thoughtfully and... Um, if it's done thoughtfully, actually, that's all it would take. I would watch the heck out of it. She was really, really interesting. I would like to see potentially someday an adaptation of Imperial Woman, which again, I'm not sure whether it's out of fashion. I don't know whether it's something that necessarily other people would like, but the novel I remember being so juicy and historical and rich in detail and so interesting. And it's essentially the the life and rise of uh, the last Empress Dowager of China. And just, I think that that would be such a great epic film to watch if somebody were keen. I think there's so much material there. And, and that's the thing about history and particularly Chinese history. Um, there's so much that we don't know or don't realize happened primarily because of how closed off the country has been for so long. There's su such rich material there. It's just whether we, we have the right people with the interest to do it. So we've been talking about adaptations of Pearl S. Buck's work, focusing on the Academy Award winning 1937 production of The Good Earth and why seeing white people with sellotape kind of hidden into wigs might not be something that we want to watch today playing Chinese people. But what adaptations might you be keen on? And again, 
Have you read any Paula's book? Do you have favourites that you'd want to share? Let us know. You can WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us, of course, at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.